All right, everybody. Hey, welcome to New Life. How many of you guys are excited to be at church today? Come on. Man. Wow. Well, if you've been keeping track, I've been gone for a couple of weeks, and my wife and I went on vacation. Uh, we, we, just, we loved just getting away for a little while. I think we've got a fantastic team. I mean, the whole, the whole thing, from the Carnegie campus to the North Black campus to the Ogallala campus, I mean, our, the team just did a fantastic job of delivering God's word, of ministering to people, of just making, making ministry happen all throughout these last couple of weeks. And I just want to say thank you, guys. Thanks. Thanks a lot. You guys did a fantastic job. Fantastic job. And see, that's why I always get up here and I say this. I, I rarely ever say what my title is because I'm just one of the pastors on staff here. I'm just one. I, I do my little part. Like, I do my piece and everyone else does their piece. And it just makes this team work in such a fantastic way. I just think that life would be a lot better if we just lowered our titles down a little bit. And we just became real people serving on a team, recognizing that I don't have to have a title to find my self-worth. My self-worth is found in Christ and the value that I have in relationship with one another. And that, that would be a much better world to live in if we could just do that together. So just take, take a lead off of me, right? And just hear me when I say I'm just one of the pastors on staff. And this is one of the reasons. It's because of what you saw these last couple of weeks. I'm just one guy on staff just doing my part because I love God and I love what he's called me to and I love, I love these campuses that he's called us to, to pastor in. But while Kim and I were gone, we did the trip of a lifetime, okay? Uh, we were able to go to Italy. We spent some time in Italy. We hopped on a cruise ship and went to Sicily and then down to Malta. If, if Malta is like completely off your radar, check out Acts 28, Paul's shipwrecked on Malta. We went over to Greece, one little island in Greece, and then up to Croatia and back to Italy again, and then wham, we came home. So it was a whirlwind trip of that little part of the Mediterranean. While I was in Rome for a few days, though, I was thinking about, I was waking up in the morning, I was doing a little bit of work on the, the upcoming teaching series, and one of the days in Rome, I wanted to go see this particular place. I wanted to see where Paul and Peter were put in jail. They were put in a dungeon jail, and it's called today the, the Mamertine Prison. I just wanted to go see it. And so we're walking around, and we take the subway, you know, to where all the ancient ruins of Rome are, the Colosseum, and, you know, all of the, all of the other ancient pieces. And um, we're walking around, and I'm like, I know this thing's around here someplace. And we, we ask a person, you know, that looks like official, right? They got the official garb on. Where do I find this Mamertine prison? And they're like, oh, you're standing right next to it. So that, that just lets you know. Like, I, I'm a decent tourist, but not the best all the time, okay? And so it was right around the corner. So we go right around the corner. There's no line. There's lines to get into everything. Tons of lines to get into everything, to see the Colosseum and to see, to get up on this hill and to see this old palace and to walk in this castle and then to go out to the walls. I mean, there's lines everywhere. There's no line to get into the Mamertine prison. I think there ought to be the longest line if you're a Christian and you're there because it's historically believed for, uh, for quite a long period of time that Underneath the ground of this Mamertine prison is this dungeon. And in that dungeon is where the Apostle Paul was held right before he was executed and they, they cut off his head. The Apostle Peter was 
held right before they drug him up out of that hole and they took him out in Rome over to where the Vatican is today and they crucified him upside down. See, it's a very significant place for me. It's the kind of place I wanted to be in. And so we went there. There's no jail like you've ever experienced. This is exactly what it looks like down underneath the ground. And I stood right down in there. It's not a jail that has a nice little bed and nice bars and cable TV. And meals that are provided for you three times a day. In fact, many times prisoners would have been dropped down. There was a hole there. They had made the hole round now for some reason. But it was originally square. And you can see where it was square. They would just drop the prisoner down through the hole. The ceilings were not much higher than our heads. So it's very, very shallow. You know, you can stand upright, but it's no bigger than probably a master bedroom or a large bedroom at your house. There would have been multiple prisoners down there. There was a pillar that would have been right here coming off this post where all the prisoners would have been chained to the one spot, all the prisoners, so that they can't work together to lift each other back up out of the hole. Many times prisoners would have been forgotten about. And in their sentencing, waiting for their execution, because the worst of the worst would have been thrown into little dungeons like this. That they were forgotten about. Many of them died before the execution ever took place because they died of starvation. They, they died of the circumstances. They died of the conditions. Down in the hole where we stood for, I, I was down in the hole for at least an hour. Other people came and they went, but I just couldn't get away from it. As I stood in this hole, it was dark, other than the, the lights now that they've used to light it up, right? But if you can picture those lights being gone, it was dark, and it was, it was cold, and it was damp down in there. And then the thought hit me, like Paul wrote his last words in the prison like this. He wrote the second, the second letter to Timothy, and I just got my Bible out on my, on my iPhone, and you know, and I'm reading through 2 Timothy while I'm standing in this dungeon, this very place where Paul historically has written these words. He penned these words in this place, and I'm reading it, and tears are, are flowing down my face. And people are coming, and I'm like, you know, and I'm like reading this thing, and it's just moving me. It's getting me. It's like inside of me. I can't, I can't get away from it. It's consuming my thoughts. It's as if I'm there with Paul and he's writing these words and I'm consuming it in this environment. And tears run down my face as I read simple passages like, hey, Timothy, send Mark to me because he would be a great asset to me. Why? Because everyone's abandoned me other than Luke. People have left me. They have, they've abandoned me. They've walked away from me. I got, see, this is what would have happened. When people abandon you, no one's there to bring you food. No one's there to bring you a coat. And he actually writes, he actually writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, hey, hey when, you, when you send Mark, would, would you have him stop by so-and-so's house? I loaned him a cloak. Would you have him bring me my coat? And I stand there and I just like, I read a little verse like, would you bring me my coat? And tears run down my face. Because I'm like, it, it's in the hot of summer, man. It is cold down in this hole. I can't imagine what it would be like in winter. And then I get to these passages where he writes, I fought the good fight, Timothy. I have finished the race. And tears come down my face. Like, man, this guy is in love with Jesus. 
This guy isn't just a man used to pin most of the New Testament. This is a man who knew what it was like to be fully devoted to the cause of Jesus Christ. He was all in. He was all in in this place. This was the only letter that he wrote from the dungeon, by the way. It's the only one he wrote from a situation like that. See, this letter would have been written in like 66 to 67 AD, and it was written to Timothy who was pastoring in Ephesus, which is a community that is on the western shore of Turkey. And he's, this is the only letter that he wrote from this prison. Now, we know that Paul wrote prison letters, but you just need to understand that the other letters that he wrote, he was in what was called house prison. It was the first time that he was put into prison you know, by the Romans while he was waiting for a trial that they decided, like, you're not even guilty, we're going to let you go. He was in a house jail, a house jail because he was a Roman citizen. He was living somewhere in Rome, somewhere nearby where I was standing, in a house that he was renting and that the Roman society was giving him tickets for food, tickets for the bath. Like the Romans, they controlled their people by providing them the basic essentials like, like food and like bathing. They had millions of people living in this city, more than anyone had ever seen before in all of history. And Paul is there, and he's getting these resources as well. And people are gathering around him because he lives in a house. And he's writing the letters like, you know, Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, but he's writing them from this house where he's free to roam the streets. He's free to go and to come and people are there and he will, he'll hold a service and he'll minister to them from time to time and then he's loosed and he's set free. But then he's arrested again by the Emperor Nero. And when he's arrested by the Emperor Nero, he's thrown into the dungeon with an execution date soon to come. And these are the last recorded words that we have of the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy. I think 2 Timothy was written with a, with a really big purpose. Not only were there his last words, but he's writing to a young, a young man that he is, he's deeply in love with. He's just in love with this guy. Like he's, they're, they're just like friends, they're companions. Paul has raised this young man up and he's sent him out to minister. And he wants to see the best in him. He sees Timothy as his own son. He sees Timothy as a man that he wants to follow in his footsteps. Like a father would love a son. Paul loved Timothy and Timothy loved Paul. And he's writing these last words to him. And as he writes these last words to him, I believe that one of the verses in chapter 1 gives us the whole indicator of why he even writes this. Take a look at what verse 14 has to say. It says that through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, Timothy, carefully guard the precious truth that's been entrusted to you. Right off the bat, here's what you need to know about this entire book. Because for the next month, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy. There's four chapters in it. I would encourage you to do something with me. I would encourage you this entire week to read, to read chapter 1. as We're going to preach on it. Okay, Just leave that scripture up there for a minute, by the way. We're going to preach on chapter 1. Right? And then next week, chapter 2. Then chapter 3. And then chapter 4. We're not going to look at the entire chapter. So that's why I want you to go back and read the rest of the verses that we don't even talk about. This right here is the premise behind the entire book. He's telling Timothy some very powerful truths here. First, he's saying this to him. Timothy, never forget, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that helps you live out 
The precious truth. The precious truth of what? The precious truth of Jesus Christ, that is saving grace, that he died and he rose again, and that he lives inside of you, and it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that you live out this precious truth, and that you guard it, and that you hang on to it. He says to guard it, to guard this precious truth that's been entrusted to you, like he's drawing this picture of a banker who has people like you and me who deposit money into the bank, and it's the banker's responsibility to guard our deposit. He's drawing this picture for Timothy, and he's saying, look, man, never forget, you got to guard. You have to guard the precious truth of Jesus Christ that's been entrusted to you. But Timothy, don't ever think you can do it on your own because you can't. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the rest of this letter that I write to you is going to help you understand how to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, how to guard the precious truth that lives in you, like preserve it, Timothy, for your own life because it's the only thing that matters from the words of a dying man. It's the only thing that matters. I've got nothing to my, to my hands. I've got no house to call home. I've got no place you know, to call my own. I'm in a dungeon, I'm chained to it. I can only get food when my friends bring me food. I've got nothing, I'm just telling you, Timothy, nothing in this world matters. The only thing that matters is guarding the precious truth of Jesus Christ in your life. Timothy, never forget, you can't do it on your own. You have to keep relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's telling this to his friend, Timothy, but he's telling it to Timothy because Timothy is a spiritual influencer, just like every single one of you are. Paul's writing this to you and me today as well. And he's saying, look, you gotta guard the precious truth of Jesus Christ in your life. Protect it like you would, like you would protect money in a bank. Protect it. Protect it. But realize this, it's only going to come through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And it's through this lens that we should look at 2 Timothy. So chapter 1. Chapter 1. Verses 1 through 7, they start out very similar to other books. There's a welcome. There's a greeting. Right? Then there's words of encouragement. But there's also these words from Paul straight to Timothy. Like, Timothy, don't forget, I know your heart, man. Your heart's after God. You have a passion for God. Don't forget the gifts and the talents that you have in your life. Don't forget, Timothy, the gift of God, the supernatural anointing of God in your life that came when I laid my hands on you and I prayed for you. Don't forget those things. But then quickly after that in verse 8, Paul jumps right into the words of instruction. The words of instruction that are for Timothy, but the words of instruction that are also for you and me today. And he jumps right in in verse 8. And let's see what he says. He says, so never be ashamed to tell others, Timothy, about, about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. Be ready. Right off the bat, this man in prison waiting for his execution, not even knowing how he's going to die. What's the very first words of instructions that he gives? He says this to you and me, don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his first words. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Get out there, tell others, be ready to suffer for me. Be ready to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ, just like I'm suffering right now. And we know that Timothy did, because in Hebrews chapter 13, it refers to Timothy having been put in prison. Why was he put in prison? He was put in prison for the leading of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the preaching of Jesus in, in the town in which he was, he was ministering in. 
We know that Timothy took these words to heart and he followed them through. Just like God, just like Paul's asking you and me through the power of the Holy Spirit, will you take these words to heart as well? Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, that's the question that's being asked of us right off the bat. Paul's writing to you today and he's saying these words to you. Are you ashamed of Jesus Christ? Now, I think your first your first instinct and your first response back to him would be this. Absolutely not. I'm not ashamed. But I think Paul would turn around and he would go, well, let me help you understand if you're ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ or not. I think he would probably throw a question out there, something like this. Like, does the world affect the way that you live out the Bible? Or does the Bible affect the way you live in the world? I think that's the question he would drop in your lap. Does the world affect the way you see God's word? Has the world corrupted you to a point where you're diluting God's word down, where you're diluting God's word to fit you and to make you comfortable? Or is God's word just being this instrument of you know, truth and this instrument of power and authority in your life that's affecting the way you live in the world? Because I'm just going to be open and honest with you guys. As we look at the church We even look at new life. The world has had an impact on the way we see God's word. Paul would say to us, when we live that way, that's living ashamed of the gospel, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's word, should be affecting the way we live in the world. Let me give you the opposite example of what I'm talking about. Let's say, what's the opposite of, you know, being ashamed? Because ashamed really means to be embarrassed of something. What's the opposite of it? I want to take you down to Lincoln, Lincoln, Nebraska, downtown Lincoln, Nebraska, game day for the Huskers. Who's been there before? Anybody? Okay, that's what I thought. Even North Platte, Ogallala, everywhere, right? Anybody that can get there from Nebraska gets there. What do you see on game day, Lincoln, Nebraska, walking downtown, even outside of Memorial Stadium? Everybody's walking around in Husker Red, right? Right. Like you, you go to places in Kearney on game day, people wearing Husker Red. Ogallala, Husker Red, right? Small town, Nebraska, Husker Red. People wearing Husker Red. People are gathering together in sports bars around the nation that are Husker sports bars in Florida, California, New York, Texas, to gather together in Husker Red to watch game day, right? So you see what I'm saying? That's the opposite of being ashamed. People are walking around in Husker Red like, I'm proud to be a Nebraskan. Well, at least I know I'm free, right? You see what I'm saying? <coughs> That's what people are doing. They're not ashamed of it. But let me, let me give you the example of what it would be like to be ashamed of that. Downtown Lincoln. Everybody's got coat, sweater on. You don't see Husker Red. You see people walking around in normal clothing. Not that Husker Red's not normal, okay? In Nebraska, it's normal. All right. But the clothing that you see in the auditorium in which you sit in right now. And then when they get into the Memorial Stadium, they shed the outer layer, and now Husker Red shines bright. And the game gets played, and people cheer, and everything's good to go. And then when they get done, they put their coats back on, and they walk back outside. That would be what it's called, or that's what it would look like to be ashamed or embarrassed to be a Nebraskan and to call yourself a Husker fan. So now bring that into the church. Does the world actually know that you're a follower of Christ? 
or do we know that you are? Because if we are the only ones that know that you are, you're probably ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you walk in, shed the layer, and go, oh, man. Finally, I'm with people that are of like mind. I can let my guard down. Because Paul would say, no, here's what it looks like. Go out there. Go out there. Never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he would call us to do, guys. And that's exactly what Jesus said. I mean, listen to the way that Jesus said, look. He goes, look, if you live ashamed of me, listen to what happens. Luke chapter 9. If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. That's not the side of the coin I want to be on. I want to be on the side that lived, just like Paul said to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, if you live ashamed of me on this earth, when I return, you will find me being ashamed of you. Now, guys, look, to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ comes with a price. It really does. And Paul would tell us this. He would say, look, the suffering is worth it. Even from the prison that I stood in, he would say the suffering is worth the price. That's why Paul goes on in this passage. And he helps us understand what, why suffering is worth it. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, for God saved us and he called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserve it, but because that was his plan from the beginning of time. To show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and he illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. Can I just say this? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 need to be verses that you memorize. And that I memorize. They need to be verses that we memorize. And here's the reason why. Because in these verses, these two verses, they give, us, they give us the totality of what it means to live a Christian life. That we worship a God full of grace. That's one of the messages that he drives home. Full of grace. Grace is undeserved favor, by the way. You didn't deserve it. God gave it to you anyways. And he drives home that point here. As he's saying to us that, look, not that we deserved it, but it was God's plan from the beginning of time that we would live a holy life, a life set apart. How? By the grace of Jesus Christ. Why should we memorize verses like this? Because we worship a God full of grace. Here's another reason why you should memorize these two verses. Because we worship a God who has a plan for you from the beginning of time. Like you need to remember that. You got to hang on to it. You can't forget the fact that God knew you before you ever knew him. He had a plan for you before you ever breathed your first breath. That you are not an accident. That you're not an oversight. You're not an add-on to the family. You're not a birth that happened, you know, in a situation that wasn't supposed to happen. You're not an accident. God had a plan for you before, before the beginning of time ever began. Here's another reason why you need to memorize this first, because we worship a God who displayed his amazing love for us through Jesus Christ, who has been revealed. We're not waiting around for the Savior of the world to come. He has come. He's already done his miraculous work. God's done all that he can do. We can never forget that God's done all he can do. He's waiting for us now to reply to him and say yes to him. 
So why is suffering worth, worth it? Why is living my faith unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and even to the point of suffering? Why is suffering worth it? Why? Because to suffer for Jesus is a reward in and of itself, Paul would teach us. I mean, just to suffer for Jesus is a reward. The apostles in Acts chapter 5, they're drugged before this high council and they're accused of preaching the gospel and ministering to people and praying for people and laying hands on people and people are getting healed and all kinds of stuff and they beat them. They flog them. They tie them to a post. They strip them of their clothing and they whip them with leather that has you know, shards of glass in it. And they beat them to a pulp. And then they look them in the eye as they, you know, weakishly stand before them. And they say to them, never preach Jesus again. Now get out of here. Okay, it's in that state that the apostles respond like this. Acts chapter 5, 41. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. See, suffering... Guys, suffering is so different than what you and I think. See, when faith comes with a price, listen to me, the economics of living, they get turned upside down and suffering starts to have worth. Faith comes with a price. Faith has to have a price to it. If faith is free in the sense of like, there's no price that you had to pay for it, there was no suffering that you had to go through, then it's worth nothing. But we've all suffered for faith. And here's where it starts. It starts first by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. There is suffering in surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. And here's the suffering that you have to go through. You have to deny yourself, say no to yourself. And you have to say, I'm not the king of my life. Jesus is going to be the king of my life. That's where suffering starts. But it doesn't end there. Suffering in the believer continues on. You don't have to be put in prison to keep going through suffering. You don't have to be flogged for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go through suffering. Oh, maybe one day that will be our future. And I believe that it will be a future for us. The Bible tells us that's what the future will be for all of Christianity. But for today and where we live, what does suffering look like for the believer? It looks like a continued denial of self so that Christ might reign in your life. When you say no to self, you're saying yes to Christ. Suffering comes for the believer in today's world by not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and preaching the good news of Jesus to others. And the, and the suffering of that will come with a price. You might be called a lunatic. You might be called crazy, fanatical, religious. Paul would say to us from the dungeon prison, where there's no light and it's damp and it's cold, he would say to you, the suffering, my friends, it's worth it. It's worth it. But he doesn't end there. He gives us one more piece of the puzzle. He says these words in 2 Timothy 1.11. He says, And God chose me to be a preacher and an apostle and a teacher for this good news. Now, pause. Some people would read these words and they would say, Well, look, the man's just boasting about himself. He's in prison. He just said, don't be ashamed of me even because I'm a prisoner and I'm in chains. What's he really trying to drive home for us? He's trying to drive home for us this. There's only one way to live unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even when you face suffering, and that is you have to know who you are in Christ. You have to know who you are in Christ, and Paul obviously knows who he is in Christ. 
The question he's asking you to consider today is this. Who are you in Christ? Who are you in Christ? What is the definition for your life? How do you define yourself in light of Christ? I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a business owner, I'm a manager, I'm a mechanic. Those are, those, that's not the list. The list comes down to this, that you've been purchased by the love of God and that you've been saved by Christ and Christ alone and that God knows me right now and that God has a plan for me from the beginning of time and that my eternity is with Jesus forever. That's who I am in Christ. See, when that's the definition of who you are, in Christ, then you, like Paul, would receive these words like Timothy did, and you would go, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. My mentor wrote these from prison right before he got his head cut off. That's how Paul died, historically. Decapitated for the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we know who we are, we live unashamed of the gospel. But when we forget who we are, then we forget who we're living for. And if you forget who you are, that when the suffering comes, you'll collapse underneath the weight of it. Never forget who you are. You've been bought with a price. You have a God who loves you. He's got a plan for you. He's excited about you. He leaps with joy over you. He's looking for eternity with you forever. And he'll walk with you during the suffering. He'll be with you when you're on the mountaintop walking in freedom. But Paul brings us really to this all of his instruction, he brings to this point of conclusion in this one verse, verse 12. He goes, that's why I'm suffering here in prison. Everything we just heard, right? I, I, didn't, I didn't live my life ashamed of the gospel. Um, I, I'm, I've preached the good news of Jesus who saved me, who knew us before the beginning of time. I've preached grace to people, right? I have, I've gone into communities and planted churches. I've empowered others. It's because of all those things. That's why I'm suffering here in prison, but I'm not ashamed of it at all. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of it. It's like I wouldn't go back and redo it. I would do it exactly the same way I've done it. I'm not ashamed of any of my actions. I'm not ashamed of any of my words. I think I've done perfectly what Jesus Christ has asked me to do. I'm not ashamed of it. For I know the one in whom I trust. And I'm sure that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until the day of his return. He gives this dual picture of entrusting, like, Timothy, look, guard by the power of the Holy Spirit, like the precious truth that's been entrusted to you. Paul's going, I've done that. I know what that looks like. And I'm also entrusting to the one I've lived for all of my life. I'm entrusting to him everything that I have. Paul, Paul's like extremely convicted, and he's extremely convinced that, 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 that there's nothing, guys, there's nothing that's wasted in this life when it's lived for Jesus Christ. He would say to you and me that there's no situation that's less beneficial that God can use over another. That God can use his imprisonment just as powerfully as he can use his freedom. And Paul would write to you and me and he would say, God can use your death for him just as powerfully as he can use your living for him. There's nothing that God can't use. I've entrusted it all to him. And I know that he will work it all for his goodness and for his glory. And the question to you and me today is this. 
Who have you put your final trust in? Who have you entrusted all of your actions, all of your finances, all of your worth, all of your significance in life? Who have you entrusted it to? Because if you've entrusted it into the bank of this world, it's decaying and it's falling apart. But when you entrust it into the kingdom of God, when you entrust your life into the authority of Jesus Christ, then it doesn't matter what happens in this world. You don't have to be ashamed of any of it. You can know this, that God will use every ounce of it for his glory because God doesn't waste suffering. God doesn't waste pain written from the man in the prison, in the dungeon, knowing at any moment the guards could come and they could call his name and they would lift him up out of that hole. They would drag him up onto a hill and they would decapitate him. If you're fully devoted to God, God will use you to build his kingdom no matter what the circumstances are. So the truth of chapter one is this, that if God can redeem the prison, the dungeon of Paul to minister to you and me in such a powerful way today. God can redeem any situation you're in. It all starts with this, the suffering of surrender. Will you suffer to surrender your life to Christ today and call him Lord and Savior of your life once and for all? And it continues with this, will you suffer for Christ in denying yourself and saying no to the things of this world so that you can say yes to the things of Christ? That's the question Paul lays out for us today. Who's going to lead? Are you going to be ashamed of him? Right? Are you going to live unashamed of him? I challenge you today. Live unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even unto suffering. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Lord, today, from a prison cell, these words continue to echo truth in our hearts. These words, they penetrate deep into our lives. Lord, I wish for everything inside of me, I wish that there was somehow, some way, I could have taken everybody that was listening to this message today down into that prison cell, and we could have read those words together from the, the smell of that, of that room, the dampness of that room, the coldness of that room, the darkness of that room. I wish that we could have read those words there. There'd been something about that that would have been so impactful, but today, I believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit that somehow, some way, you took us to that dark dungeon and you helped us to hear the words of a dying man who wrote his last words to us. And Lord, they were inspired by your Holy Spirit that were challenging us to live our lives according to your purpose today. Lord, I just want to say this on behalf of my life and behalf of this church. Help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to live unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to live for the glory of Christ. Help us to live suffering for the goodness of Jesus Christ, denying ourselves so that the power of the Holy Spirit might reign in us. Help us to guard the precious truth of Jesus that lives within us. Let it not be decayed by the values of this world, but by it may it be something that changes this world. Lord, let our lives not be changed by this world, but by the, let this world be changed by the way we live our lives according to your word. Lord, in this room are people that matter to you, in North Platte, there are people that matter to you. Online, there are people that matter to you right now. Lord, may they sense the power of your Holy Spirit, and as we worship you, may there be a closeness with you. May we surrender ourselves so that you may reign and rule. In Jesus' powerful name.
And everybody said, Amen.